When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please help us get the word out. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rate the series on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. Hi, I'm Scott Chesworth, and welcome to the Ancient World Rediscovery. Episode R5, Behistun Hattrick. Technically, there were plenty of worse ways to die. But still, to have survived Kurdish bandits, Afghan armies, disease, and assassination attempts, only to lose your life to a rickety ladder, it just seemed a bit, well, anticlimactic. And most importantly, there were still a lot more inscriptions to copy. At 34, Henry Creswick Rawlinson was no longer the same spry young man who'd repeatedly climbed up to the heights of Behistun eight years earlier. But, on the other hand, he had a good grip on the ladder and no intention of letting go. Needing to bridge a gap in the ledge in order to access the Elamite inscriptions, Rawlinson had laid a ladder across the chasm. Since the ledge was so narrow, only one long side found a purchase, and the ladder rotated downward, with the rungs now pointed vertically. Rawlinson didn't see a problem. He could still make the crossing by stepping along the lower long side, while holding on to the upper long side. Except, well, the rungs hadn't been designed for that kind of service, and the lower long side just kind of popped right off leaving Rawlinson literally in the lurch, clinging to the single long side that still spanned the gap. Two hundred feet below him, a field of boulders hinted at one possible fate. Carefully, inch by inch, Rawlinson edged his way back to the ledge, until his companions were finally able to pull him to safety. Taking no time to pause and reflect on his brush with death, Rawlinson immediately began exploring other options to accomplish his task. The solution arrived at was to lay an even longer ladder across the gap, so all ends could find purchase, and then prop a second vertical ladder on the rungs of the first ladder. Then Rawlinson could climb to the top of the vertical ladder and copy the inscriptions. 
This was only slightly less insane than an earlier approach he'd used. Standing on the top rung of a shorter ladder and gripping the cliff face and his notebook with one hand while writing down the inscriptions with the other. But just like in that case, his total determination and superhuman fortitude saw him through. It was the summer of 1844, and what Rawlinson had finally obtained was the full Old Persian and Elamite texts of the Behistun inscription, all eight columns and 650 lines of them. The Akkadian text, unfortunately, still stood just out of reach, but Rawlinson knew he'd someday have to return and make that final, most dangerous attempt. In Khorsabad, Boda was unearthing the Palace of Sargon II, while back in Europe, eager scholars were taking their own shots at cuneiform decipherment. Fields that didn't even exist a few years before, archaeology and Assyriology, were now moving forward at breakneck speed. And Rawlinson had some hard work to do if he was going to maintain the preeminence he craved. Fortunately, hard work was something he'd never shied away from. Five years earlier, in June 1839, Rawlinson had begun his tenure as the company's political agent at Kandahar in Afghanistan. After reinstalling Shah Shuja, most of the company's army had been sent back to India, with those left behind clearly insufficient to maintain an occupation of the country. Despite numerous forceful warnings from sources close to the ground, including Rawlinson, senior company officers continued to downplay the growing danger of rebellious tribes and general public resentment. If British restoration of the unpopular Shah wasn't bad enough, the situation was exacerbated by cost-cutting measures mandated by the Governor-General of India, Lord Auckland. These measures included cutting company subsidies, basically protection money, paid to Afghan tribes, and reducing the size of company forces in Afghanistan even further. And I think we can all see where this is heading. In October 1841, Kabul exploded into open rebellion. Afghan tribesmen overran the city, and Rawlinson's counterpart as political agent was hacked to death trying to escape. Besieged in the citadel, the British envoy Sir William McNaughton began negotiations with several leading Afghan chiefs. The negotiations were fairly one-sided, basically how soon and under what conditions all company troops would leave the country. During a final round of face-to-face -face talks in late December, McNaughton and several officers were seized by tribesmen. As highest-ranking symbol of the occupation, McNaughton was stabbed to death, then dismembered, with his head paraded through the streets of Kabul and his body hung from a meat hook in the bazaar. In January 1842, over 16,000 company troops and family members were force-marched out of Kabul toward the Khyber Pass. Within six days, all but a few hundred had died of hunger, exposure, or attack. In the end, only a few dozen survivors reached Jalalabad alive. 
Cut off from contact with Kabul, Rawlinson had no idea how dire the situation had become. But the thousands of Afghan fighters slowly gathering around Kandahar gave him some sense of the shifting mood. In January 1842, the same time as the Kabul refugees were making their doomed trek, Rawlinson took part in a major military engagement in defense of Kandahar, leading a company of Persian and Indian horsemen against 2,000 Afghan cavalry. In the aftermath, General Knott, the senior military commander in Kandahar, praised Rawlinson's conduct in the battle. In mid-March, an even larger Afghan force tried to take Kandahar. In the absence of Knott, who'd been lured away, Rawlinson led a brief and bloody defense of the city that took the lives of 600 attackers. Knott's return two days later, along with dissension among the Afghan tribes, secured Kandahar's temporary safety, and the arrival of additional company forces in mid-May finally rendered the city unassailable. With more company forces gathering at Jalalabad, Rawlinson expected the announcement of a major push to retake the country. Instead, word arrived from company headquarters in India that all British forces were to leave Afghanistan immediately. Rawlinson was appalled by the absolute waste of lives and effort, but he also had a more immediate concern. The British withdrawal would have to be performed in absolute secrecy, or the Afghans would take the opportunity to wipe them out en route. In early August, company forces began the long march from Kandahar to Kabul, reaching the city in mid-September. Before continuing on to India, the company took revenge for the January Rebellion by completely destroying Kabul's great roofed bazaar, then inviting their troops to plunder the city. To Rawlinson, the whole affair was just a futile display of senseless barbarism. In mid-October, the company army left the devastated city and its traumatized survivors in its wake. Two months later, in December 1842, they safely arrived in India, where Rawlinson was subjected to one final disaster. All his notes and research on cuneiform studies had been lost to a fire in transit. In nearly every respect, Rawlinson would have to start all over again. Having now spent half his life away from England, Rawlinson at first intended to return home. But a chance meeting with the new Governor-General of India, Lord Ellenborough, presented him with an even more attractive opportunity. Impressed by Rawlinson's military service and political acumen, Ellenborough offered him the vacant post of political agent in Ottoman Baghdad. Since the position would give him the perfect opportunity to resume his cuneiform studies, Rawlinson jumped at the chance. It was late 1843 before Rawlinson arrived in Baghdad. Originally founded under the Abbasid Caliphate in 768 AD, the city was now capital of what was variously known as the Pashalik of Baghdad, Arabian Iraq, or Turkish Arabia 
a province of the Ottoman Empire covering 100,000 square miles. Rawlinson's residence on the Tigris was huge and ornate, and he quickly settled into his role as both political agent and, as of April 1844, British consul. As soon as he found time, Rawlinson surveyed the state of cuneiform scholarship. To his relief, he found that little progress had been made in his absence. Trilingual cuneiform inscriptions were still only known to exist in four locations, Persepolis, Behistun, Mount Alvand, or Elwand, and Nakshi Rustam, the royal necropolis carved into the cliffs a few miles from Persepolis. And, while Old Persian was pretty well nailed down, no one had made a serious run at deciphering either remaining cuneiform script. In August 1844, Rawlinson set out with a few companions on a diplomatic mission to his old stomping grounds of Kermanshah, which naturally meant a return to the Behistun inscription. Eight years on, and with a little less to prove this time, Rawlinson brought ropes, ladders, and planks to ease the ascent. From dawn till dusk over the next week, Rawlinson threw himself back into the work of recording the inscriptions. First, all five columns of Old Persian were recopied. Then he moved on to the Elamite script, and his fateful encounter with the rickety ladder. In the end, Rawlinson was able to make paper casts, known as squeezes, of the entire Elamite inscription, leaving only the Akkadian for another day. In February 1845, Rawlinson sent his first translation of the old Persian inscription to the Royal Asiatic Society, as a kind of placeholder for eventual publication. At the same time, he was beginning to study both Akkadian and Elamite in greater depth. The main problem was the small database of available inscriptions, which is why Rawlinson was intrigued by accounts published in the Malta Times of a huge treasure trove of cuneiform inscriptions recently unearthed at Khorsabad. For the first time, Rawlinson heard the names of two men who'd soon become invaluable to his research, the archaeologist Paul Emil Boda and the author of the Times stories, and soon-to-be archaeologist himself, Austin Henry Laird. At the time, Boda had completed his excavations and was awaiting transport back to France, while Laird was still employed by Ambassador Canning in Istanbul. In April 1845, Rawlinson wrote to Laird to discuss Boda's finds, not knowing that within a few months, Laird would be making his own discoveries at Nimrud. Rawlinson was soon confident he'd identified 90 out of the 100 symbols making up the Elamite script, but still had no idea how to translate them. He also surmised, correctly, that Elamite had only been used in Persia and didn't appear in inscriptions from Mesopotamia or the Lake Van region, in other words, ancient Urartu. Unable to make further progress, Rawlinson turned his attention to the Akkadian script. 
As he labored away, he was constantly worried that French access to the Korsabot inscriptions might help them take the lead. Also, a lot of Rawlinson's time and energy were focused on dotting the I's and crossing the T's on the massive Behistun research package he was finally preparing to ship to the Royal Asiatic Society. In September 1845, Rawlinson fired off his first salvo. Detailed drawings of the relief and transliterations, translations, and notes related to the four complete columns and fifth partial column of the Old Persian inscription. A month later, he shipped a second package, which included a general discussion of cuneiform, details on the Old Persian alphabet, vocabulary, and grammar, and translations of all the other Old Persian inscriptions currently known. Rawlinson would continue to send additional chapters every few months over the next year. The Society was so excited to finally get its hands on the material that they fast-tracked the first package for immediate publication, which realistically meant it would come out around a year later. But, you know, this was all pre-internet. The main delay was creating new typeset for all the new cuneiform characters. In late 1845, Rawlinson's friend Austin Henry Laird finally made his way down to Mosul. In a nice touch of irony, Rawlinson wrote Laird to gently lower his expectations of finding any stone monuments at Nimrud, since the site was probably too far from sources of stone. Rawlinson was rarely happier in his life to be proven wrong. The two men kept up a frequent correspondence, and Laird accepted Rawlinson's invitation to spend Christmas with him in Baghdad. 1846 and early 1847 were fully occupied with Laird's excavations at Nimrud and Rawlinson's ongoing Akkadian efforts. In June 1847, Laird ran out of money and was forced to return to Istanbul to Rawlinson's great disappointment. The same month, Rawlinson decided he was also out of options. No matter how difficult it was, he needed to copy the Akkadian inscription from Behistun. As a quick aside, this script was being called Assyrian at the time, since it was the same script identified at Khorsabad, Nimrud, and Nineveh. The insanely hot summer weather put things on hold for a bit, but by early September, Rawlinson was ready to try for the Behistun hat trick. This time around, even his usual crazy jury-rigged climbing aids proved useless, and he ended up resorting to two novel approaches. The first was to hoist himself up to a nearby precipice and copy the Akkadian text using a telescope. The second, more ethically questionable approach was to pay a very brave and very agile young Kurdish boy to make the super precarious climb up to the inscription. Once there, he set up a plank supported by ropes tied to wooden pegs, kind of like a modern-day window washer contraption. The boy then sat securely on the plank and made a paper cast of the Akkadian text, which, well, bravo, young Kurdish boy. 
And just to mention it, I've heard and read quite a few times that it was Rawlinson himself hanging down to make this copy, but the version I've just related seems to be on the most solid footing. At the end of the effort, Rawlinson had copies of around half the Akkadian text, which was pretty much the best he was going to do. In October 1847, Henry Creswick Rawlinson said his final goodbye to the Behistun inscription. Their relationship, passionate, often dangerous, but always rewarding, had already spanned over a decade. The next person to climb to the ledge, in 1903, would once again marvel at Rawlinson's feet. He'd also note one small additional inscription, carved just a few inches below the cuneiform text. It read simply, H.C. Rawlinson, 1844, which seems like a fitting place to take a break, especially since I'll be away on vacation for the next few weeks, and it'll probably be closer to a month before the next episode gets posted, which is why I wanted to get this short bonus episode out the door. In the meantime, I hope you're enjoying the new series, thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next time on The Ancient World Rediscovery.